Good morning, Mission. We are so extremely excited that you are here with us this morning. Thank you, Pastor Eric. Um, And as he said, we are here for one reason and one reason only. Our pursuit is to worship Jesus first and foremost above all things, to make disciples in his name, and to multiply. And that is why we are here. That is why we do any and all of what we have just done, set up, tear down, and everything in between. Now this week, we are going to continue on our sermon series, um, Unstoppable God. Now we are going to look at Acts 21 and 22. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles or devices there, whatever you're going to use to read along. And if you do not have a Bible or a device with you, there should be a Bible somewhere on the floor that you can use. Feel free to use that. If you do not have a Bible at all, feel free to take that with you as our gift to you. We would love for you to have that. But before we get started, as you turn, if you would, uh, we're going to pray one more time because we can never do too much of that, and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, I am just a man, a sinful man, just like everyone else that you have called today to preach your word, and I pray that you speak through me, that it is your words, that it is your infallible scripture that we look at and learn from today, that it would be nothing about me, that it would be nothing about Mission Church, but that it would be solely and 100% about you, and that we would learn what our mission is, what our call is, in light of who you are. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We thank you for salvation for the people that are believers in this place. And as Pastor Eric prayed just a moment ago, I want to reiterate that if there is anyone in this place that is not saved today, that you would save them in this very moment. That they would come into this, into this building unsaved, without a relationship with you, and they would leave completely different. We thank you that you can do that. We thank you that only you can do that. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so... Last week, Pastor Eric walked us through chapters 19 and 20 of Acts. Now, again, we want to reiterate, this is, we're not going through Acts like we go through a lot of books of the Bible verse by verse. We're doing larger chunks. That's why we're doing Acts 21 and 22 today. And last week, we looked at, at Paul in Ephesus, the culture that he was dealing with, the gods that they were worshiping, and all of those things. Now, we did not specifically look at Paul's intentions going forward but it is stated in chapter 20. So if you would, just a couple paragraphs up, read along with me. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, we see what Paul is intending to do. It says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. Honestly, we could just read that and go home because that that last sentence there, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. That is a beautiful statement that I hope all of us can say and mean here today. But I'm not going to stop there. So we look at two things that the Holy Spirit is telling Paul here. He says he is constrained by the the Spirit. So the Spirit is speaking to him very clearly two things. One, go to Jerusalem. It's very clear. Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. He has no doubts that the Spirit is who is leading him there. And the second thing that the Spirit is telling him, that no matter where you go, whether it's Jerusalem or any other city, because it says in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await. Now, we don't know exactly at this point what afflictions mean, but it's never meant anything pleasant. So Paul knows that he's going somewhere that it's probably not going to go well. Prison, 
not pleasant. Affliction's not pleasant. He is aware that where he is going, it's not going to go well, and he is okay with that. Now, we will see here in a few minutes the contrast between the way Paul interprets that message and the way others interpret that message. But we see here very clearly by what Paul re- how Paul reacts to that message that he does not care. He is constrained by the Spirit, and he must go where the Spirit is leading. So we see Paul's intentions, and now we will pick up in chapter 21. Now, one thing I do want to state before, I'm not ignoring the fact that Luke is very detail-oriented for a reason. If you read the Gospel of Luke or Acts, written by Luke, he was a doctor, he loved details, he gave, gives you every de- I mean, at one point he tells you why they were in a ship just to like take some stuff off of a boat. So he's very detail-oriented. I'm not ignoring that, and I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but we are going to kind of skip down to verse 4. I'm going to read them, but we are going to pick up in verse 4. So it says, And when we had, part, had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, we see that again, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So we see in verse 4, the first warning that Paul receives from humans that he should not go to Jerusalem. It says disciples, so one thing we know about them is they were believers, they weren't just naysayers, or they weren't people trying to derail Paul's mission to Jerusalem. They were believers who thought the Spirit was telling them to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, we do not know exactly who these people were by name, but we do know that they weren't just random people. And it even says, through the Spirit. So it begs the question, is the Spirit giving two different messages here? Paul has clearly said that the Spirit is telling him to go to Jerusalem. These people are saying the Spirit is telling them that he should not go to Jerusalem. I do think that's a legitimate question. We will answer it in a moment. But right now, it looks like The spirit is confused or something to that sort. All right, let's keep reading through verse 12. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So Paul is going to leave anyway. Even though these people told him not to go, apparently he told them, forget that, I'm going anyway. And So they accompany him to his boat, see him off. In verse 7, we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his feet in his hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So we see here Agabus kind of comes out of nowhere. We have actually seen him before in the book of Acts. He's in chapter 11, I believe it's verse 28. But it, it very quickly just goes over a little thing. It says, and Agabus prophesied that famine was coming to the land, and so it did. So we have seen here that Agabus is a believer, he's a disciple, and he's a prophet who, at least in one instance, knew exactly what he was talking about. He prophesied that something was going to happen, and it came to pass. So we see here, we have at least record here that Agabus is a prophet who prophesies 
things that are going to happen. Now he looks at Paul and he says, because you own this belt, or because you're the owner of this belt, it wasn't like a fashion faux pas, like he was wearing white after Labor Day. Because you own this belt, you're going to get bound by the Jews. It wasn't that. It was the Holy Spirit had told him that whoever owns this belt is going to be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Now notice he does not specifically say not to go. He just says, if you do go, this is what's going to happen. And then we see that after a lot of people hear this prophecy, then they join in telling Paul not to, not to go. And we even see, it seems that Luke, beforehand, he was saying they told him not to go, and now he's saying we told him not to go. So it seems like Luke, the author here, was even swayed. It seems that he was like, before, no, we should probably go, maybe not. So he's kind of changed his tune. Now, as we saw earlier, this prophecy by Agabus was not news to him. It wasn't, Paul wasn't surprised, like, well, what do you mean they're going to bow? He knew afflictions and imprisonment awaited. So the answer to the question of, is the Spirit confused? Is the Spirit delivering two different answers? or whatever, However you want to phrase that question. The answer is a resounding no in my book. He already told Paul that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. Now he's telling Agabus that they are going to bind him and hand him over to the Gentiles. The difference is the Spirit is telling the same message. They are interpreting that message differently. It seems that Paul sees that information. I'm going to face afflictions and imprisonment. And he says, I count my life no value to myself, only that I may finish my course in my ministry. I got to go. The Spirit is leading me. I must follow the Spirit. No matter what the circumstances may be, I have to go. But upon hearing that same message, these prophets and these other disciples take that as a reason not to go. Verse 12, when we heard this, the people urged him not to go. It becomes clear to, these, to, to me that these people think it is a great thing to follow God as long as it's easy, comfortable, and safe. Now, it actually reminds me of a saying, Todd, this is the pictures here. I actually Google imaged this, this saying, because it, and it popped up hundreds of results. But the first one here, if you can't read that, it says, The safest place to be in all the world is in the will of God. And I have three, I think. There's another one, just for, that one's a little dangerous. This one, I don't know what the horses have to do with anything. But the safest place to be is within the will of God, and then the third one is really happy. I don't even know what the pink stuff is back there, but the safest place to be is within the will of God. Now, a little audience participation here. I tried to pick three background images that were very different. What's the commonality between these besides the words that it says? Anybody besides my daughter? Where's the scripture reference? Any of them? I looked at hundreds of images. There wasn't a single scripture reference on one of them. Why? Because there is no scripture reference for that saying. There isn't a saying in the Bible that says the safest place to be is in the... Somebody tell Jesus that when he's praying in the garden. May this kept pass from me. Well, Jesus, <laughs> the safest place to be is within the will of God. I assume that would have ended with him smashing that person's head like the snake, but I don't... Maybe Jesus would have been a little more nice about it. But... Can you imagine how ridiculous that sounds in light of looking at what Jesus had to go through? The man who's most in the will of God of all time, who never sinned in any way in the will of God every second of every day of his life, 
the safest place to be is in the will of God. It, it sounds ridiculous. And this is post-Jesus' death and resurrection. So these people that are telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, it may end bad, should have known sometimes it ends bad for God's people. Now, it, Paul completely understood this fact. He knew that at no time has God promised safety. He knew that God has not promised an easy life. As a matter of fact, this is the same man that pins in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Being a Christian is difficult. It is hard. No one has ever promised that it is going to be easy. Most of all, the scripture does not promise that it is going to be easy. And if this is the only reason we're following Jesus, this life and not an eternal reward of some sort, then Paul says people should feel sorry for us, that it's silly or stupid for us to live for Jesus if this is the only reward we get because it is difficult and it is becoming increasingly hard to be a Christian especially in America we will not go into that but you see it wasn't God was delivering two messages to Paul and his prophets they were interpreting it differently Paul interpreted the danger as wherever God leads I will go the others were interpreted as a sign that if it's dangerous that must not be where God is calling me to go that must not be where God is calling Paul to go if it is dangerous. But look at verse 13, how Paul responds. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. May this be something we can truthfully say ourselves. That we are willing to go to prison. We are willing to be persecuted. We are willing to face any and all repercussions for following Jesus, even unto death. Now, that's a sermon in and of itself that we are not going to spend all our time on today. We may come back and do that some other time. But think about the warning here, the dire warning. Paul is even saying, I may die here. And where is he going? He's basically going to the Bible belt of the ancient world. Jerusalem is where all religion kind of started and took place. All the nicest people should be there, right? I mean, it's the, it's the religious capital of the world. This is not only where the Jewish people should have been and stationed for the most part. But this is where the Christian church began. This is where the day of Pentecost happened. This is where the Holy Spirit fell upon the, the apostles. They spoke in tongues. And 3,000 people in one day came to believe in Jesus. And yet now, people are warning him not to go back there because it's not going to end well. You see, it is believed that Acts 21 took place 20 years after Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road that we see in Acts 9. So a lot of time has passed here. Now think about, again, we won't go into the details, but think about America 20 years ago, even a place like this. Lot of, lots of changes, right? Jerusalem was no different. Lots of changes. And yet, look at America, look at Jerusalem, a lot has stayed the same. There's a lot of believers here, and yet it's still a very Jewish climate. Even the believers there have to battle against this works-based theology, this works-based religion, this ritual-based cleanliness we have to earn our way to be good enough to get to God religion and we see this very clearly in the next section I'm not going to read every verse of this we're just going to try to narrate it and see what it's saying to us um, later on so verses 17 through 26 again this is the section that's coming from I'm going to kind of sum it up but it tells us now that Paul went to James who is the apostle in Jerusalem he has stayed behind because there were believers there. We see, again, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believers. Someone needs to be there to shepherd them. There is no indication that James never left Jerusalem, but it does have an indication that James has been there for a while, shepherding these people, shepherding the church that is in Jerusalem. 
Now, we don't know if there were other apostles there either. It does not say. But we do know there were plenty of believers and that James was leading them. Paul meets with him and a group of believers before entering the synagogue. And James, in verse 20, tells Paul that many thousands of Jews have come to believe in Jesus, but they are still very zealous for the law. Meaning, they still don't get it. They believe in Jesus, so we've gotten that far. But they still think you've got to add to it. You've got to add these works. You still have to go through these rituals. You still have to do all of these things. Yes, Jesus saves you, but it's only if you do these things to make Jesus save you. So it's very clear here that Paul is still kind of battling the same battle that he's always battled. That these Jewish people just don't get that that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves. Belief and faith in Jesus is what saves and nothing else. They're still trying to add things to the faith and they're still trying to earn their salvation. And James then tells him that people are saying, Paul, people are telling other people that you are telling the Jews that they have to become Gentiles to be saved, which is completely false. Paul has never said that ever. He has just said that the Gentiles do not have to become Jews and to do all of these things because it's Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that saves you, and that's it. Now, some of these these rituals are not all bad in and of themselves. That's not what Paul is saying. So Paul is not saying that the Jews have to become like the Gentiles. Again, he's just saying the Gentiles do not have to become like the Jews. So Paul wants people to understand that it is faith in Jesus that saves, not the law, not the rituals. But James tells Paul, to prove your point, this is what you should do. We have four guys that have become believers. They're going through what's called a Nazarite vow. I don't have time to go into all of the details of that. Long story short, you end up with a shaved head. Pastor Eric went through it a few years ago, never turned back. He's, He's a Nazarite through and through, apparently. So that's... That's really all that matters right now. Paul is going with these people. James is saying, go do this ritual in front of everyone so that they will know you're not saying these things. Now, a lot of, he does. He goes with them. He's basically reverting back to Judaism. And then a lot of scholars believe that Paul sinned in this area. Now, I'm not here to debate whether he did or not. Others justify it by saying Paul was becoming all things to all people and, and being not a Jew but showing them that Jewish people can come to faith as well. Again, I'm not here to debate all of that. We do know that Paul at times has rebuked others for reverting back to Judaism. We see in Galatians, he comes to Peter. Peter is eating and partying with everybody. He's he's with the Gentiles. He's with the Jews. It doesn't matter. He's a social butterfly. And then some Jewish people show up, and Peter's like, whoa, hey, I only hang out with these guys. I only eat their food. I'm only Jewish. And Peter says... Dude, it doesn't matter. He rebukes him for reverting back to it matters what you eat. It matters how clean you are before you come to Jesus. And Peter tells him, look, it's all about Jesus. Eat whatever you want. And praise God for that because now we can eat bacon. So we see Peter, when people revert back to Judaism, Peter rebukes, or Paul rebukes them. But now we see him go along with James' idea. Now again, I'm not debating whether Paul sinned or not because the object lesson is the same. God uses sinful men to accomplish his purposes. Paul was a sinner. Whether he sinned here or not, Paul was a sinner. He was a sinful man. He calls himself chief among sinners even though he is the best church planner that's ever known besides Jesus himself. So we see here that no matter who you are, man, woman, child, you're going to be a sinner and yet God can and will use you if you follow his will, just as Paul is doing. 
But we do see he participates in the ritual. And then we see in verse 27 through 30 that Paul is arrested for being there anyway. So all of this work, possibly sinning, I don't know, whatever you want to, that's a debate for another day. But he does all of this to prove, hey, I'm still cool with you guys, and they arrest him anyway. One, he should have known that was going to happen. The Holy Spirit told him it was going to happen. But two, it's, they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the synagogue, which was against the rules, which, again, if they understood the gospel, it would not matter if he did or didn't bring him in there anyway. But because they're believers, some believers and some Jewish people that are still very Jewish, they think you can't bring that Gentile in here. It, it desecrates everything that we've built here. And Paul is saying he didn't do it anyway. That's beside the point. He didn't bring him in there. But they were saying he did, and if they understood the gospel, it wouldn't have been a debate anyway. He could have brought whoever he wanted in there because it is all about Jesus. So after all of that, it doesn't work. Paul is trying to prove his point, and, and yet exactly what the Holy Spirit told him would happen, happens. And this is yet another proof that God uses sinful men, in, even in sinful situations, to accomplish his purposes. Not Paul. These men were sinning against Paul, and yet... This was the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said he was going to be arrested. Now, these people were, were sinning. I can go ahead and end that debate by arresting Paul for what he was doing. And yet, God uses it to accomplish his purposes anyway. Now, there is some important application here. Just like Paul, we are all called to do God's will. I don't think anybody in here, at least believers, would debate that. We are all called to do his will, and sometimes it's very clear what that is. But two points of application we can see from Paul here being arrested. One, sometimes God calls us to do something that looks very crazy to other people, and it works out great. We're doing some, we're, we feel God has called us to do something. Everyone in our life is telling us, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. We do it. It works out awesome. Nananaboo-boo, I told you so. Ha-ha. It worked out great. Second point, sometimes God calls us to do something that looks extremely crazy to other people, and it works out terribly, and you end up arrested and beaten like Paul did. And both can be God's will. That's what we have to understand. It is not about the results. It is about what God has called you to do. Sometimes people are going to tell you, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Then you do it because you feel God has called you to do it. And then it ends terribly, and they get to look at you and say, see, I told you so. And you can say, no, I told you so. I'm still following after God's will. The Holy Spirit told me ahead of time this was going to happen, or at least Paul can say that. He was beaten. He was almost flogged, which if you don't know what that is, Passion of the Christ, pretty much the majority of the movie before he gets to the cross, the really painful parts um, that are hard to watch. That's what flogging is. He's almost flogged. The only reason is because he is actually Jewish by descent. They let him off. But he's arrested, and most scholars believe he never sees true freedom again, that he's imprisoned the rest of his life from this day forward. And I bet a lot of the people that told him in, in the earlier verses here that you shouldn't go to Jerusalem were saying, see, I told you so. We told you not to go, Paul. This is, we told you this was going to happen. And he's saying, no, I told you so. Philippians 1.12, written from prison in Rome, says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is... For Christ so he looks at them and he says no I told you so look what God is doing this was God's will this was God's call and this was God's purpose so what if it ended badly for me personally it ended great for Jesus 
It makes me think of another man in history named William Carey. And William Carey lived uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and he is considered by pretty much everyone that knows anything about it the father of modern missions. We weren't really doing the international missions thing before he came along. It was kind of his idea, I guess. It was God's idea, I get it. But it was through William Carey. He went to a meeting of the Baptist leaders in late, the late 1700s, and he brought up the idea, shouldn't, hey, shouldn't we be going over there to the, they called them heathens at the time, that may be an outdated term, but shouldn't we be going to the heathens? Shouldn't we be going to the unreached people groups? And the chairman of the board, or what chairman of whatever, stood up and said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Sounds a lot like Paul's detractors, doesn't it? Don't go. Don't go wherever you're planning on going. It's not going to end well for you. God will take care of them. If God is going to save them, he'll save them however he's going to save them. That doesn't mean you have to go. And yet, even the, in the faces of everyone that said, you look crazy, in 1793, him and most of his family boarded a ship and set sail for India. He went there, he spent time with the Bengali people who were unreached, and day after day after day after day, preached the gospel to these people. Now, while he was there, he got malaria, survived it. His five-year-old son died of dysentery, and his wife became so mentally ill that she accused him of adultery and threatened him with a knife to his throat. He survived that too. I don't know how. But she never recovered either. This wasn't like a virus that she went crazy for a day. She never recovered. She was mentally ill the rest of her life, and he cared for her until she died. And yet he preached and preached and preached the gospel. And for seven years, not one single person came to Christ. For seven years, every single day he's preaching. He never went home. He never took a furlough. And not one single convert for seven years. Now after seven years, he finally baptized one man. And then he spent 41 more, not 41 more, 41 total years in India, never once taking a furlough, never once leaving India and these people. And in a country of millions of people, in 41 years, his ministry saw 700 people saved. Which, praise God for the 700. That's awesome. But in a country of millions, that's really not that big of a dent. So I'm sure all of the people that told him not to go were saying, see, worthless. You spent 41 years there, and nothing happened. However, while he was there, him and his team translated the entire Bible into 209 different languages and dialects. And in 2015, there are over 30 million followers of Jesus in India. William Carey never got to see that, but he knew he was on call from God. He knew he was, he was going there for a reason, and he would never get to see the results. He would never get to see the full harvest. He got to see 700 people come to belief in Jesus, and I'm sure he praised God for every one of them, but I bet his detractors were saying, told you, he died in 1834, and I guarantee you all of them were like, waste, but he knew, even through his doubts, I, <laughs> I didn't read this, but in seven years and no one comes to Jesus, I've got to assume he doubted at some point, I've got to assume he was like, maybe they were right, maybe God didn't call me here, but those doubts were never enough to make him leave. William Carey knew he was on a mission from God, and we see this here with Paul as well. Paul knew through imprisonment and afflictions that God had a plan, and that plan involved him going to Jerusalem and being in prison and afflicted. 
God, told, God the Spirit told Paul to go, and he went knowing the dangers. Now, it is never, ever a bad idea to seek biblical counsel. When you have a big decision to make, please do that. <laughs> That's not what I'm telling you not to do. But those people don't have to answer for what you were called to do. Those people don't, if God is calling you to do something, he's not going to hold the people that told you not to go accountable. If God is calling you to do something, you are accountable to God to decipher whether he is calling you there or if you are crazy. Because, don't get me wrong, sometimes we have crazy ideas that people should talk us out of. But others will talk you out of them because it sounds crazy to them. God hasn't called them to do whatever he's called you to do. So it probably does sound crazy to them. But if, if God is calling you to do something, you must do it. Anyone know what happened on December 7th, 1941? <laughs> Please say you do. Shaner, the teacher, is going to be really mad if you don't. Pearl Harbor was bombed. America was not at war. They were hands off. We're not getting involved here. We're not doing this. Next day, we're at war because Pearl Harbor got bombed. Anybody know what happened on December 8th, 1941? Still to this day, it's the highest number of volunteers we've ever had to enter the military. The day after that America said, we're not going to war, and we got bombed, and now we're going in droves people showed up to volunteer because they thought it was their duty to go they felt called i don't know if it was a call by god but they felt called to go and nobody was gonna i'm sure a lot of them got talked out of it their parents were like, nope that's somebody else's fight let's let somebody else handle that but apparently a lot of them did not get talked out of it and it's because they felt called to do their part we must be undeterred like those people we must be undeterred like paul we must be undeterred like William Carey. There are detractors, and there have been detractors, saying, don't plant Mission Church since the day we first met in the Hazel's living room. There are people saying, it's crazy, don't do it, what's the point, blah, blah, blah. But God called us here to plant Mission Church. God called us here to plant a vision of worshiping Jesus and making disciples, and that is what we're doing. Now, the world has a saying, and that saying is, the ends justify the means. And most people, if you ask them on the street, would agree with that. If you get the result that you were aiming for, it doesn't really matter how you got there. There's obviously a few exceptions. Don't kill people to get there, whatever. But most people would agree that as long as it pretty much ended okay, however you got there is okay. Now, while I disagree with that statement on a lot of levels, I disagree with the statement as a whole when it comes to following Jesus. Following Jesus, it should be a complete flip. The means justify the ends. Because the ends are not our call. If we are truly following after Christ, then what, whether it turns out good or whether it turns out bad, whether we see fruit, whether we are part of the harvest or whether we are not, if we are truly following after Jesus, the means justify the ends and we are doing what God has called us to do and He will take care of the ends. He will take care of the fruit. He will take care of the harvest. It is a matter of obedience, not success and failure. It is a matter of following, not fruit. God brings the fruit. We are called to sow the seed. We are called to water the seed. We are not called to make the seed grow. That is God's part, and we, all we can do is our part. So who are we to say that however it ends up, that it's a failure if we're following God's call? Who are these people to say that Paul was a failure because he ended up in prison? Now we can look at this from another biblical perspective, and again, we'll go over this very quickly. We do not have time to preach the entire book of Jeremiah today. But what do we know about Jeremiah? He was a prophet. He had a book of the Bible named after him. That's pretty good. 
But his name itself means whom Jehovah appoints. He was a prophet appointed by God to preach a message to Israel. Now, a lot of people believe he was only 17 at the time. And if 17 is pretty young, most people aren't going to listen. Jeremiah brings that up. And God tells him, look, I have called you for a purpose. I have called you for this purpose. In Jeremiah 1.5, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He was appointed so much so that God, the, the Spirit led his parents to name him whom Jehovah appoints so that everyone would know this person is a prophet of God. This person is speaking God's words. And what do we see him speaking? We see very clearly the message that God gave Jeremiah to deliver in Jeremiah 3, 12 through 14. It says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless Israel, declares the Lord, for I am your master. This is the message of repentance that Jeremiah was given to preach over and over and over again. And after a small protest, Jeremiah did it. He followed God's call, and he preached this message of repentance over and over again. And what happened? If you thought seven years was a long time, brace yourself. For 23, this is in the Bible, Jeremiah 25, 3 through 5. For 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers. So for 23 years, Jeremiah preaches this exact same message. Repent, turn to God. Repent, turn to God. Repent, turn to God. And in scripture or extra biblically, we see no evidence that a single person ever did. For 23 years. Now, if you do the rest of the math in the, in the rest of Jeremiah, it was 41 total years, that he, which is also the same amount William Carey was in India. We call that sovereignty. You may call that a coincidence. But it was 41 years for both of them, and not one person repented. Not one. But Jeremiah did not become, he, he probably did become discouraged, but he did not change his message. He refused to change the message. So much so that in the 26th book, or sorry, the 26th chapter of Jeremiah, we see him on trial for his life. Apparently, people finally got fed up with him saying, God's going to kill all of you for not turning back to him. And they were like, all right, we're just going to kill you instead, and this is how it's going to work. So he's on trial for his life, and in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 26, it says, Now therefore mend your... This is, he's given a chance to defend himself, and this is what he says. Now therefore mend your ways and your deeds, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Spoiler alert, they didn't kill him. But that's what he said in his own defense. He just repeated what God told him to do. Repent. You can do with me whatever you want. This message is the same. You must repent or it's not going to end well. God is not going to be happy if you do not repent. If you will repent, he will be merciful because that's who God is. So not only was his message not working for 41 years, but now he's on trial for his life, and what does he do? He does the exact same thing. He preaches the exact same message. Why? Because Jeremiah knew that the means justify the ends. 
If God wants those people to change their heart, they will. And he'll do it by me preaching this message. I can change my message, and probably people will repent because I won't be so abrasive. But Jeremiah knew that that wasn't what God had called him to preach. That is not the message that the Spirit delivered to Jeremiah to deliver to the people. So he refused to change his message. And I want us as Mission Church to understand something. We are Jeremiah. We are all, individually and corporately, whom Jehovah appoints. Our names may not be Jeremiah, but we are whom Jehovah has appointed. If we are saved and we are believers in this place, we have been given a message and a mission from God, and we have no choice but to relay that message. We, like Jeremiah, cannot change it. We cannot sugarcoat it because the culture says it's offensive or because the culture says that's not going to work or because the culture says, why don't you just lighten it a little bit and maybe people will come and join your church or maybe people will like you more or whatever the case may be. We cannot change this message. We must speak the truth and let God work out the results. And we have said over and over throughout Acts and we'll say it over and over through all the other books of the Bible as well that we are the ones commanded to be the witnesses to the end of the earth we are the ones that are commanded to make disciples it does not just apply to those back then that heard it verbatim from jesus or from the spirit we are called the exact same way we are called to do the exact same thing to be witnesses and to make disciples and we look around our world and we look around our country and our city and maybe even our own families and we see people who need to repent and turn back to god and we have been given the message that will empower them to do so. And it's the gospel. It's not whatever charisma that we have. It's not whatever message we have. It doesn't matter what I'm saying up here if I don't eventually get to the gospel. It doesn't matter that you love them if you don't love them in the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter that you are doing social justice unless you are doing it in the name of Jesus. Unless you are preaching the gospel, we must be willing, like Paul like William Carey, and like Jeremiah, to do that at all costs, no matter what the results. I have no doubt that we could change our message here at Mission Church and gather a crowd. I've seen it happen all over the globe. We won't name names. We could probably do it by next week. We could change our message enough, and a few people would hear about it, and they'd show up, and then more would show up, and then more would show up. But what have we accomplished? Nothing. Because that would be the end's justifying the means we must not only be okay with but we must learn to embrace the fact that our gospel efforts are useless needless and very futile if god is not involved in them if god is not if god is not calling us to do what we're doing it doesn't matter if we do get hundreds of people in here it doesn't matter if every church gets hundreds of people if they're not doing what god has called them to do if they are not delivering the truth of the gospel then that their growth is futile. Our evangelism is futile. We, it will accomplish nothing if it is not done with this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God never promises us success. He promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church, not mission church. We are a part of His church because we believe in Jesus as our Savior. But He never promises that He's going to bring people to mission church. He does promise... That his church that we are a part of will succeed, but our call is to simply be faithful. Our call is to simply do what God has called us to do. And maybe we're called to faithful futility like Jeremiah. 
Because we're sitting in this room here today because Jeremiah preached that gospel, even though he never got to see a single person convert. If it wasn't for him, obviously God is in control of all things, but if it wasn't Jeremiah preaching that message, there's no way to know what would have happened. Because eventually Israel did turn back to God. It just wasn't in Jeremiah's lifetime. Eventually the Israelites did come back and believe in God. But we must be faithful in our futility or in our success because that's all in God's hands. J.I. Packer says that we must remember that we are called to be faithful, not successful. Now that may be hard for some of us to hear. I know as the pastor of this church who wants to see more people come here and to grow in Jesus and to believe in Jesus, that's hard to hear that maybe they won't. That doesn't change what we have to do. That does not change our message. That does not change our calling. It does not matter what the culture says. We must remain steadfast in Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We have been given a message, and we have stated it over and over again. We have been given the gospel message that God created, man sinned, Jesus lived, died, lived a perfect life, died and was resurrected in our place, and now what? Believers must worship him for that and carry his message to non-believers. And non-believers must be called to respond to that message and to only that message. This is the message we have, must have on repeat, not only as Mission Church corporately, but as believers individually. We must have it on the tip of our tongues at all times. We must be willing to keep on keeping on in the face of apparent failure and coming persecution. Because God has promised a harvest whether we're a part of it or not. And maybe one day people are going to look back and go, you know what, I wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't for Pastor Justin preaching the gospel to these ten people who didn't become Christians, but somehow I'm affected. Or insert your name in that sentence. It, it may not be something you see, and we have to be okay with that. God is still calling us to proclaim that message. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.16, as I, as I close here, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. May we say this and mean it, church. Individually and corporately. May we honestly say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I am constrained by the Spirit. I must go on. I must be like Jeremiah that is pent up in my bones like a burning fire. I must unleash this gospel on the world i must tell people about jesus and may we say this and mean it and let the means justify the ends because we are faithful god will do what god's going to do because no matter what he does mission church could grow to a million tomorrow i don't know what we would do if we did but we'd do something or it could stay this size forever and no matter what he is still worthy of all praise he is still majestic and he is still worthy of us proclaiming this gospel. Now may we give him the praise that he deserves. May we be truly in awe of who he is for saving those who do not deserve it. Let us pray. Father, we come to you asking and wanting a harvest. Asking you to save people and to use Mission Church to do